There's a good little subject in the Bible that I um, want to run by you. I just want to kind of, you know, cool down, just talk to you. But tonight I want to talk to you about a verse in Hebrews chapter 10. So turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. After we trust Christ as our Savior, everybody knows that we still have a few little hang-ups and problems. We still do some things that are wrong. And, um, you know, when you're learning how to walk, you, you stumble, you fall. And, um, and sometimes, yes, we even sin willfully after we've been saved. Now, I've covered this scripture before, but I'm going to do it a little bit different. Um, I, I don't think that it's talking about, okay, I... Um, uh, if we sin willfully, I told a lie on purpose. I, I think it goes deeper than that. Well, I went back and I smoked a cigarette. And smoking is not going to send you to hell. You might smoke when you get there, but it don't send you there. And so I uh, went back to smoking and therefore I'm, uh, I, I sin willfully. And we think it may be something, you know, some of those sins that we might commit afterwards, you know. And I was mean to somebody or unkind or I was unforgiving. And God getting all upset for something like that. So he says here in verse 26, If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Boy, that's, that's pretty strong. I mean, was it that bad? I mean, we don't even do that to our kids. We're not that hard on them. But um, maybe there's more to it than what's on the surface. But sometimes you've got to do a little digging and, and thinking. Remember this. There's a verse in the Bible somewhere that says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Where is that found at? Romans chapter 10, verse 4, right. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. It does say that Christ is the end of the law for righteous to everyone that believeth. So they had the law for about 1,500 years. And then Jesus Christ came. And so when he came, he was, um, we call it the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so Moses says, there's a prophet coming just kind of like me. And then here's Jesus, he's... Uh, making a, um, a sacrifice and uh, carrying blood into the Holy of Holies and all this. And he's uh, like a high priest. And yet he wasn't a priest after the order of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. He was after the order of Melchizedek, which according to Melchizedek, uh, the Bible says in chapter 7 of Hebrews, he, he didn't have a beginning or ending. There's nothing recorded about his, you know, his, his age or his birth, his parents, nothing. It's just that uh, he likely lives forever. And so Jesus was the priest like that. Hebrews is, I believe, talking to um, Hebrews, Christian Hebrews, Jewish people, believers. And you know they had been under the law for all these years. And so it was customary that when they sinned, and they did, and they had to come and they'd have to offer certain you know, animals and the high priest that uh, you know, would kill them and so on. 
And sometimes they'd have the people put their hands on whatever they was going to sacrifice for them as they transfer sins to the animal, then the animal was killed. And uh, I guess if today, if you had a little Bambi and it was, deers was acceptable and you had to put your hand on little Bambi and little Bambi had to have his throat cut, uh, it might make you cry, especially if it was your pet. But there were sacrifices that they had to make. And so the, the priest would, well, he'd have to go into this veil that kind of kept everybody else out. And there was a, a holy of holies in there where they had the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there was rod, Aaron's rod that budded in the Ten Commandments and uh, uh, some manna that was supposed to be in there. And so in the cherubims and so forth in the ends, and they would sprinkle the blood upon the, the mercy seat and, and they would tie a rope around the guy so that, uh, you know, if God didn't accept that sacrifice, <laughs> he died. They could pull him out. But um, everybody was glad he went in and made a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people. Then he'd come out. Well, this whole story changes. You see, the people have been doing this for, you know, all these years. And so they were steeped in Judaism. But now... Jesus has come. And Jesus was God in the flesh. He was the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And so I want you to take your Bible and turn there to the book of uh, Matthew in chapter 27. Matthew, hold your place in Hebrews, but Matthew chapter 27. And I just want to run this by you because later on I'm going to refer to it and I want you to know where it is. In Matthew chapter 27, I want you to know that um, when Jesus uh, cried with a loud voice in verse 50, he said, yielded up his, the ghost, and then in verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake and the rocks rent and graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose, came out of the graves after his resurrection, went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Wouldn't that have been a, an awesome sight to see? These people that have been buried and some of them walking through the streets of Jerusalem. But what I want you to see there in verse 51, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. I believe there's a reason for that veil being rent, torn from top to bottom. Because I believe the Lord did it. And the Lord took that temple and ripped it. Now whether or not it was when he was on the cross or when he came back from the dead and there's a, uh, an earthquake. And because of the resurrection, the sin had been paid. The veil was rent. And we have access into the presence of God. Now there's a good possibility. Somewhere along the line, if that veil was rent and they continued their temple sacrifices and the priest going in there, they had to either replace the veil or repair the veil. It was a repeal and replace. So somewhere along the line, they had to get the veil fixed. So I wondered whether or not, you know, these Christians now who had trusted Christ as their Savior, why were they still going and offering sacrifices when they don't need to do that anymore? They just did that as a type until Christ came and he was the final sacrifice. After Christ's sacrifice, they didn't need to make any more. 
because he was the end of the law for righteousness, everyone that believeth. So he should have been the, the last sacrifice ever made. And because of that, here's these Jewish Christians, and somehow or other they are still either in the Judaism or they have come out of it and learned a lot, and now they are, well, going back into some of those very same things. So I believe the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews as a human author. I don't have any scripture reference for that. It's just that that's what I believe. And uh, that's not that important. It is in the scriptures, and it's inspired of God. But whenever you study the book of Hebrews, and to these Jewish believers, uh, there was a danger of them going back into Judaism. And he says, you have, you know, like come out of it, that you saw it, you understood, you were illuminated, your mind was clear, you saw it, and you endured some hardships because of that. Now, why would you want to go back into that? And so Hebrews is showing us how much better grace is over law. How better Jesus is as a high priest over the priesthood of Aaron. That he's so much better. That Jesus is better than the angels. He's better sacrificing all the blood of bulls and goats and whatever they offer. He, he's better. And that what you have is the best. There isn't anything better. Why go back to something that was not that good? And so in Hebrews you find that he talks about that old covenant has to be done away with. And you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about the, the, the different covenants. And here in the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 13, when he talks about Jesus Christ as the everlasting covenant. This covenant that he made was forever. And this is only required one sacrifice, and it would be his, and nobody else had to ever make another sacrifice for sin. But there was people that were like ready to go back into Judaism, go back under the law, uh, go back to the temple and offer some sacrifices and get in. He says, you don't have to do that because he, they established churches. You didn't have to go to the synagogue anymore. Now, when Paul went around preaching, he went to, first of all, all the synagogues and he would preach about what Christ had done. So in the book of Hebrews, just look there, first of all, in chapter one, chapter one, referring about Jesus Christ and who he is in verse 3, we covered that this morning, that he had by himself purged our sins by his own blood. Now, if he's already done it, then what, what do you need another sacrifice for? So he says in verse 4, being made so much better than angels. He, he's better than everything. There's nothing better than Christ. In other words, don't you realize what you have? Now, in the book of uh, Galatians in chapter 3, he says... You have begun in the spirit. Are you made perfect by the flesh? Why are you going back under the law? Christ has made you free. Why do you want to become enslaved again? In the verse we showed this morning from Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. And about stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And become not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Because see going back under the law is bondage. I got to do this. I got to. I got to. Grace is so much different. 
It's I want to, I want to, I want to. Now here in the book of Hebrews, he tells us what he has done and how much better he is. And it says some things will pass away. Just look, for example, there in, in verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vexture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail, because he's a, a high priest that lives forever. So not only did he do what he did, and it was the blood of the everlasting covenant that once you trust him as your savior, you have everlasting life. All your sins are paid. You don't need another sacrifice. Christ is not going to make another one. You don't need to make another one. And so you get into chapter 2 and he makes a statement there in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? This salvation that has delivered us from the law and given us this freedom. And now, do you want to go back to that which he has saved you from? Remember, you were under the curse of the law. And Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why do you want to go back to that? And seeing that we have such hope in Christ because the law could not give you hope. It was based upon works. And no man has ever kept the law. So he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord, confirmed to us by them that heard him, and so on. And so he goes through here and lets you know that he tasted death for every man. See there in chapter 2, look at verse uh, 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Who did he die for? Every man. Jesus did this. And so he wants to make us something that the law could not do. He wants to make us perfect in Christ. So when you look there in verse 10, for it became him, for whom are all things, and by him we are all things, and bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You can't get anybody better than someone that's perfect. And Jesus is perfect. You can't get any better than that. Those priests that used to do it, well, they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves because they were sinners and they died. And their time limits <laughs> were limited. And by the time they were 50, they had to quit. And they couldn't start until they were 20. So they got to retire soon. And now he says, um, Jesus, he's, he's different. He's better. He is a great high priest. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace. See, before it was always in fear and in trembling. Even when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, fear and trembling. And so even when... That person had to go into that holy of holies. They did it in fear and trembling. And he says, you, you and I, we don't have to be afraid. Hold your place right here. and Just look over there in chapter, thir uh, chapter 12 of Hebrews. In chapter 12, there's this word, look at verse 25. He says, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. 
For if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And then down there in verse 28, he says, Wherefore we receive in the kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence. For our God is a consuming fire. And several places in the book of Hebrews, it will talk about, yes, fire. But it's not a, the hell fire. I believe it's the judgment of the Lord upon his people and God was kind of giving us some warnings. So when you go through the book of Hebrews, you'll find there's warnings in here about what God wants and what God does not want. Now, go there to chapter 3 of Hebrews, where he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, so we know we're talking to believers, we're talking to Jewish believers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, or confession, but our profession, Jesus Christ. He is a high priest. So it's going to hit this from the high priest position. This is what Jesus Christ, we believe, is doing now in the heavenlies. He is our priest, and we can go to our high priest, and we can talk to him, and we can share things with him, and come boldly to the throne of grace, and we can ask of him, because, see, he was just like we were. He was here in this world. He lived, and he died. He suffered, and he was tempted in all points, yet did not sin. And so he's somebody that, well, he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He got tired. He got weary. He got hungry. He was forsaken. He knows all of that. He was a human, like we're human. But he didn't have a sinful nature. But he hurt just as much. He hurt. He cares. He had compassion. And so he's in heaven now. And he is our high priest. But the thing is, though, see, every since he got there, uh, since he does not die, he will always be because he, he can't die. So we don't have to have another sacrifice made. He's not ever going to come back and make another payment for sin. That one payment that he made was sufficient forever. Now, he talks about a, a house and those things that are mentioned here in chapter 3. But one of the biggest dangers is God's people not understanding what they have in Christ. We have a better high priest than any of the Jewish people ever had throughout all their history. We have so much more, and we ought to be very blessed. Well, we are blessed. Now, look there in Hebrews in chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, look in verse 14. He says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So there's no question about who we're talking about. Then he said in verse 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we can always, for the rest of our lives while we're here, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and make our requests, our petitions known unto the Lord. We can ask God for whatever we want. This is what the Lord says we can do. And we don't have to be afraid. 
We don't have to be scared and trembling at whether or not he's going to accept our offer and our sacrifice. We don't have any to offer. We don't have to do any of that. So he makes a statement here in chapter 5 and verse 1. For every high priest taketh from among men, which was the tribe of Levi, which was the Aaron priesthood. He says, is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. In other words, they were intercessors for the people. They made the sacrifices. They were supposed to be the ones who taught the children of Israel the law. That was part of their responsibility. And he says here, pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what he did. They made sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sin. He got to do it for himself too. He's no different than you are. He was just someone that God used and he had to make those sacrifices. But he was a sinner too. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus didn't have to make any sacrifices for himself. So he says, and no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. And that was Moses' brother. But you see, in verse 5, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but be uh, he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he said also in another place, Thou art my priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is better than the high priest. Because, you see, there's like a no beginning and there's no ending. It's of an endless life. And he's showing the difference. And this is why Jesus Christ is the one that we can go to and talk to. And he's so much better. So to these Jewish believers, why, why would you want to go back under the law, back into Judaism? And so he goes through here and explains some of these things. But also to realize that if Jesus Christ did not pay for all of our sins, that when a person sins, how are they going to get them paid for? Do they have to go back to the temple, make another sacrifice for their sins because Christ didn't pay for that one? Is that to crucify Christ over again and over again and over again? To make a mockery out of what he did? And this is what I believe he's talking about in verse 6 of chapter 6. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. It's like he's got to do it again and again and again. How can any of my sins that I commit down the road cost me my salvation if that sin's already been paid? But if that sin wasn't paid, well, what am I going to do about it? Well, then if I could lose my salvation, then I could never get saved again because there's no more repentance. There's no more sacrifice to be made. So it becomes a mockery. And there were people, I believe, that were shaming the grace of God. And I'll show you that in just a minute. But here he's talking about we have so much more, so much better because of Christ. And the promise that Abraham or God made to Abraham there in the last part of chapter 6, God swore an oath because he is God and he cannot lie and there's no one higher than him. He can make a promise, but then it would depend upon him. Well, if he can't lie and there's no one higher than that, I think it would be pretty good that he'll keep his word. 
And the Old Testament saints look forward to this payment that was going to be made. And we look back to the payment that's been made. But we're all saved by grace and always have been. Now, when you look in chapter 7, he says in verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Because, you see, they had to change all the time. Well, because they got old and they died. Because the law did not give life. The law only takes life. And so he goes down through here and he makes this statement. And look down in verse 16. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but, and you ought to underline this in your Bible, but after the power of an endless life. You see, Christ never dies. He's alive, and that's why he says, forevermore. He died once for all the sin of all the world, once. And since he did that, he doesn't want his children going back to the temple, go back to the law, offering sacrifices and giving it relevancy. Like it's got some credence to it. No, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So you don't have to do that anymore. And that's why down in verse 19, he makes a statement, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. And that's the payment that Christ made by a, a high priest that offered himself without spot, without blemish. And he became that payment for our sins. In chapter 8, you'll notice in verse 6, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a, and you ought to line these two words, better covenant, which was established upon better promises. It was based upon God doing it, and the old covenant was based upon people doing it. It was based upon works and people there's nothing wrong with the law, but the weakness of the law was not the law. It was the people who could not keep the law in Romans in chapter 8. And so therefore in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. And so there was a new covenant. And this is mentioned there in uh, the last part of chapter 8. And in chapter 9, it talks about this payment that Jesus Christ made. That never has to be done again. So you look there in verse 11 of chapter 9. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. But by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place. Having obtained what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption. That means an eternal payment. A payment made once and for all never has to be done again. So in verse 14, how much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, I want you to catch the phrase in that first part of that sentence of how it's worded. When he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot. Now just hold your place right there and look in chapter 10. In chapter 10. And you'll notice what he says here. 
in verse 28. In verse 28, he said, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy unto two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose he which shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Almost identical to the verse we read back there. But this is because Jesus Christ made this one payment once and for all. There is no more payment. So when he makes a statement there in verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. There is no more sacrifice, not just what Christ did. I'm not convinced this is the reference to Christ making another payment. They don't have to make another offering. They don't have to make another sacrifice. There is no more sacrifices for you to make. You don't have to go back under Judaism. You don't have to make another offering. Because what Christ did was sufficient. And not to accept that. Once you know the truth about this and you understand this, why are you going back and doing this and trying to get back into something like that? He says, now wait a minute. He says, don't you know, and that's why in verse 29, who... Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified? See, he's talking, I believe, to a person who is sanctified. Didn't in chapter 10 he make the statement, we have been sanctified forever, being pure and holy and set apart. We have been sanctified. It's written right there when he makes the statement in verse 12, uh, verse 12 and also in verse 10. Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Well, if that's true, then you don't need to make another sacrifice. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, and I believe he's referring to Jewish people going back to the temple and maybe having some priest make some sacrifice by some little lamb or some little dove or some turtle lover, whatever it might be, he says, that's like crucifying Christ over again, like it wasn't worth it. And you trample under your feet the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he talks about there in verse 29, he says, Who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. What covenant? The one that's mentioned in chapter 13 and verse 20. Look at that. Chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That covenant he made was signed in his blood, and his will that he left is no good until you have the death of the testator, which is Christ. Well, when he dies, that will is in effect. And the will said, this payment was made for whosoever believeth. And once you have believed it, you never have to worry about another sacrifice for your sins. There's no sacrifice you can make for your sins. A sacrifice has already been made. So I do believe that there's a possibility that goes to that. Now, look up in Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 19. Verse 19. Having therefore... And then you see that word, brethren, brethren. Not talking to lost people. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. In other words, it's like now that veil in the temple has been rent from top to bottom. That body of his was the veil. 
and it's been rent. And you and I can go into the very presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need somebody else to do it for us. We don't need to go through Mary. You don't have to go through some other priest. You don't have to go through the preacher. You have access to the throne of God. And he says, and you don't have to be afraid. You can do it with confidence. You can do it with boldness. And so he says here in verse 20, for a, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the, get this, and it's amazing how this happens to be in here, veil, that is to say his what? Flesh. And on that day when Christ was crucified, and whether or not on the resurrection, that veil was rent from top to bottom. And so there's people today that are trying to sew the veil together and continue under the law. You and I, we don't have to go under the law. We have been made free from the law. There's no more sacrifices for us to make. That's why that payment Christ made for us was good. It made us good to go. He gave us his perfection, his righteousness. And that's why we can know that we're going to heaven. So now, is Christ coming back? Yes, he's coming back. Look what he says here in Hebrews in chapter 9 and verse 23. Verse 23, Hebrews chapter 9. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves would better sacrifices than these. So God said his son was a better sacrifice. His blood was incorruptible blood. If it's incorruptible blood, how long will incorruptible blood last? Forever. In verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. The one that was on the earth was only a figure of the one that was in heaven, made after the pattern of what God showed Moses in the wilderness. He says, but now in the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now that last part of that verse, see, that's his priestly ministry. He is to appear in heaven for us. He's my lawyer. You read in 1 John chapter 2, we have an advocate in heaven. we got a lawyer. He's better than Perry Mason. Never lost a case. And when the devil accuses you, he steps in and says, under the blood, under the blood. I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. And we can go ahead and serve the Lord with confidence and with boldness, knowing that we are forgiven individuals. And God can bless our lives and uh, so much more. So, in closing, I just want to mention these here, a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 10. Look again what he says. In verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. See, I don't believe he would have to go through this with these Hebrew Christians if there wasn't a problem with these Hebrew Christians. Because of the temple that was there, and they're going back under the law. And then he says here, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world... Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, they had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written to me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices or offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first on the law, that he may establish the second under grace, the Old Testament, the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. This is his last will and testament. And then he says in verse 10, 
by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This will is the testament. This will is the covenant. It's like the man died and left me in his will. And he says that I'm good to go. All my sins are paid. All my sins are covered. I don't have to worry about it because he said, he said, it's the blood of the everlasting covenant. And he has all kinds of things he wants me to inherit because, see, I'm an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. And so I become an heir of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the king. And so he says here in verse 20, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, and underline that part, which can never take away sins. So to go and do this is like saying Jesus Christ, his death, his payment was not sufficient. This is exactly the same thing that people are doing today that believe they are keeping their salvation by living a good life. That's their sacrifice. They're sacrificing the church services. That's my sacrifice. Me giving money, that's my, I'm paying. I'm sacrificing that. I'm sacrificing all these other things I could be doing, but I'm sacrificing. Those sacrifices have nothing to do with your salvation and going to heaven. There's already a payment been made that's been good to go. And the only thing anybody can do is accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that's why I believe there's only this one sacrifice for sins in verse 12. And he has perfected us forever. And now because we know this, in verse 26, if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Well, what's the knowledge of the truth? There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. You don't have to do it anymore. Now that you know that, don't do it. But if you do, this is going to make God very angry and very upset. What do you think happened right after this to that temple? It was destroyed. What year? 70 A.D. 70 AD. This was written around 64, 65 A.D. Okay, God took care of that, didn't he? Look up here. This hand represents you and me, and the wallet represents sin. We all have sin on us. God loves us. And because he loves us, he hates the sin because his sin separates us. But sin has to be paid. God loves me, wants to be with me, but can't tolerate sin. And the wages of sin is death. So all of us are to be eternally separated from God in a literal fire burning hell. But God loves us, wants us to go to heaven. And to go to heaven, you have to be perfect as righteous as God. None of us are perfect. We've all sinned. We cannot save ourselves. This hand represents Jesus Christ. He's the Lord God in the flesh. He came into the world because he loves us, hates our sin. And so he, because he loved us, became the sacrifice, the payment for our sins. He came back from the dead and says, if we would believe he did this for us, he'd put this payment to our account, and we can know that we have eternal life, know that we're going to heaven when we die. He became the payment. So when you accept Christ, he was my payment. The scars in his hands and his feet, those are the proof of payment. means my sins have been paid and he, as long as he's alive, I've got my receipt. And he said he would live within me and he'll never leave me and never forsake me. How long have I got my receipt? How long is it good for? Forever and ever and ever. And he says now, to try to add to what he's already done is a disgrace. 
to what he's already done. Let's pray, shall we? My head's bound, eyes closed, and no one looking around. If you're here tonight, or if you're watching by internet, and you never really trusted Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that he loves you, and he loves you so much. He wants you to go to heaven, but you can't earn eternal life. You can't work your way to heaven. You see, it's a gift. It's free. He paid for it. And the one of the things that really would be a, a shameful thing to do is to spit in his face as though there was no value to it. And you're going to try to save yourself by your good works. Like you didn't need him at all. And yet there's no other way. He loved you so much. Would you trust him as your savior? If you'll trust him, he said he would save you, give you eternal life, and never cast you out. It's based upon his promise that he cannot lie. And there's no one greater than him. But if you've never trusted the Lord, would you trust him right now? And if you will trust him as your savior. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to raise your hand. Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know that what I said made sense. And you said, preacher, that made sense to me. And I will trust Christ right now. And I want to know that I'm going to heaven. So in the quietness of this moment, is there anyone else say, preacher, I will trust Christ right now as my Savior. And I'd like for you to pray for me. Would you just slip it up very quickly, put it right back down. Yes, God bless you, ma'am. Anyone else? Just right quickly, just slip it up, put it right back down. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to come to you. Anyone else before we close? If you're watching on the internet, right on the screen, says, yes, I'll trust Christ as my Savior. I pray that you will. Father, we thank you again for this time together. Thanks for watching over us, for blessing us. And we thank you, Lord, for the individual that indicated that they would trust your Savior. By doing so, they become your child, your child forever. You said you'd never cast them out, never lose them. And they know that when they get up to leave, they can say, I'm going to heaven because Jesus paid for all my sins. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.